iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yo, technology. What is it all about? Do I want to be the guy that's getting up at 5.30 in the morning, you know, trudging off to the city with their copy of their FT under their arm? And it's like, no, shoot me. Like, <laughs> you know. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. We travel to London, uh, virtually, of course, to talk about millennials, specifically the millennial consumer and how they're changing, well, kind of everything. And we're going to do that with a fascinating guest. His name is Heath Jansen. Heath is uh, really interesting because he comes from my old world, covering mining companies way back in the day. And Heath was one of the top mining analysts in the world. He worked in the city of London for years and years. And then way back in 2006, when the mining world was really booming and record profits, the China, the mining super cycle, everything was going wonderfully. He wrote this report, 100-page report, that was almost heretical at that point. And in it, he argued basically that big swathes of the industry were unsustainable, uh, principally coal, and that unless they changed their ways, they'd eventually go out of business, that these were uninvestable. And it was, let's say, uh, an uncommon view back then, certainly unwelcome uh, in large quarters, if not all of the uh, industry. But um, he put it out there and then, you know, the world didn't change very much. And he stayed at the mining thing for, oh gosh, another dozen years or so until he finally quit a couple years ago to go full-time on something completely different. And it's called the Think Better Group. This is a company he has founded. And what he's trying to build, obviously, couldn't be further from mining. It is uh, a millennial-focused stable of sustainable brands, consumer brands. So think plant-based diapers and sustainable coffee and plant-based wetsuits, all this kind of stuff. And I just think what he is doing is really interesting, especially as climate moves up the agenda and it starts to bleed into consumer decisions in ways that it hasn't previously. And if you think uh, back to the episode last week with the lab-grown chicken, this is all of the same piece, this idea that, you know, business is changing, consumer behavior is changing, consumer expectations are changing. And so you have these old industries struggling to reorient themselves toward this and then a huge new generation of companies cropping up to kind of serve uh, this different world. And so I just think this is really an interesting example. Heath is still very in the early days of what is, you know, as you'll soon hear, a very ambitious project. And I think you'll enjoy it. And I'll also say that after this conversation, you will never think of diapers or nappies the same way again. So with that, I will hand you over to my conversation with Heath Jansen, the co-founder of Think Better Group. Enjoy. So can we start at the beginning? 
because uh, it's an unlikely path. You were like myself in a different way. I used to cover the kind of the big, old, dirty industries, but you were more directly involved. So, you know, where does the story start? Yeah, I mean, I did um, industrial chemistry at university and then went and worked for Rio Tinto, the, the big mining company at the time in an aluminium smelter. And then obviously I transitioned into, into finance um, after that and, and spent 20 years as an equity analyst. Were you actually in the smelter or were you kind yeah, of... Yeah, I ran an aluminium smelter. Wow, where? In my early 20s uh, in Bell Bay in Tasmania. So right. I was what they call a potline superintendent at the time. Had about sort of 100 people working for me at a very young age and actually running operations, you know, 24-7. That sounds um, very hot. It was. So molten aluminium is around about 960 degrees. Um, oh, my God. So it's a pretty warm place to be. <laughs> um, and it's a pretty tough environment, I give you, coming out of university and, and walking into that, which was very unionized, some very tough, tough guys. I bet. And you were this 20-something who were like, hey, I'm the new boss. Yeah. So I had 100 people working for me, and I was the youngest of all of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a trip. Yeah. Taught me a lot of lessons. I remember it's sort of like two o'clock in the morning when I was uh, working on shift and, and running it, and this guy came up and goes, "We got our last boss, and we're going to get you." Oh, going, oh, that's that's very interesting. Well, let's, uh, wow. let's, let's let's work through that. And uh, I think what it taught me is you just got to get out in front. So uh, you know, the only way I could solve this was to you know work harder than than those guys and yeah. get in there and drive it. And uh, I remember you know a year later, this the same guy came up and he goes, "See, I told you you'd never change us." And I'm like going. Well, look at you today. I think if you look <laughs> where he was today um, and where it was, and he goes, you're actually the best boss we've ever had. And I said, thank you very much. It's very nice coming from, from you. He'd been, oh, yeah. he'd been doing the same job for 30-odd years. Oh, um, wow. You know, it's like a coal miner. I'm sure there's you know, a few people that might be going to affiliate with a, with a coal miner, but, but very, very similar. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of, lot of good lessons and then sort of jumped into, into finance company called Merrill Lynch at the time. I had no idea who they were, but I'd done a, a commerce degree in accounting by that stage as well and went into finance and analyzing. In Australia? In Australia, analyzing mining companies and commodities. And why did you make that jump? I mean, I know that I would probably be like, I got to get out of this place that's a thousand degrees and has a bunch of roughneck guys who maybe don't want me around. But I don't know if that, if it was <laughs> that literally simple. Gonna, literally threatening to kill me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think at that point I had a lot of experience in, in managing people and operations. I mean, Rio Tinto was fantastic in terms of process control. Um, yeah. But it wasn't teaching me about, you know, finance and presenting and engaging and, and yeah. all that the investment side of it. And really, I sort of walked into that and was, you know, amazed that this world actually existed. Mm. Um, and that was my next sort of, you know, 20 years of, of looking from the outside in at, at right. these companies and, and what was actually, you know, happening. As a financial analyst. Yeah. So I was an equity analyst. And in the end, I was um, global head of metals mining research at Citibank for around 15 years and ran their global team. And so how, when did you come over to London? 2004, I came across to the UK. So quite a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. To run the team uh, at that point. Yeah. You see, you're counting on your fingers, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm and... just cracking my knuckles, but uh, yeah. But um, <laughs> so you were doing that. And because what you're running now, it couldn't kind of be further from what you you were doing then. How did that conversion start? You know, like for myself, 
listeners of the podcast will know, like I'm very, I've become more and more interested in call it green tech, climate tech, whatever you want, as being this really big, new, interesting waterfront and a huge opportunity and something that's very quite urgent. And that happens over time. But I'm curious where, from where you were sitting, how did you come to this? One being an Australian coming to the UK and loving coffee, and there's a massive specialty coffee scene um, in Australia. And about 10 years ago, founded a you know specialty coffee business in, in the UK. And at the time, the specialty coffee did not exist really in the UK. What is specialty coffee? High-end coffee, premium Got coffee. Got you. Uh, it's that narrative around specialty, but really premium coffee and really back to that and, and commodities, um, you know, throw it out there. Commodity is the second most traded commodity in the world. Um, coffee is. Coffee. Oh, second really? to, to oil and gas. Bigger than LNG, bigger than copper, bigger than aluminium. Really? Um, it's a, yep. Well, that's a fun fact. Yep. So if you ask me how I got connected in commodities, well, there you go. It's, uh, and it's a commodity that, again, lacked traceability around mm. it and lacked ESG. 2006, I actually sort of went down the, the rabbit hole at the time of what they called SRI at the time, which was, which was um, now ESG, and uh, wrote a big report at the time about the mining industry and commodities and the sustainability of the, the whole industry and came up with Citigroup's Sustainable you know, Mining Index. That was about sort of 15 years ago. And at that point, it was sort of clear that you know, commodities like coal were bad. You know? yeah. And commodities like platinum and things like nickel were, were going to be part of that transformation in terms of things like you know, solar and renewables were, yeah. were going to you know, be part of that journey of what people actually needed. And, and what was the kind of the thesis of that initial report that you wrote? The, the thesis was, as a, you know, I said, as um, you know, coal actually bad yeah. um, for the environment. Um, and but you know not all commodities were the same, and, yeah. and commodities like you know, nickel and aluminium through lightweighting were, were going to be commodities that were going to win. And really, I think what I became frustrated at as a equity analyst in the city that really 15 years later and, and nothing really had changed, and, and there was yeah. no real incentive for big corporates really to, to basically change because you know incentive structure and so all these sorts of things are just not there. I mean, have you seen Jerry Maguire? Yes. Was this like, you know, at the beginning, he, he like has this moment of clarity and he writes this mission statement, which is like fewer clients, more personal care, like blah, blah. And everybody's like, you're fired. You know, like this is not <laughs> how this works. You are in the wrong business. What was the reaction to you basically being like coal, which at the time is, you know, I, can't, I don't know what in terms of like the ranking of commodities, how big it was, yeah. how much it was worth, what the trade was, but massive for the biggest mining companies in the world. How did that, what was the reception of you saying, basically, this is a really bad thing and it's going to lose? Yeah, I think back to your thing, is a Jerry Maguire moment where people are going, why did you write that? <laughs> um, and and I, I know 15 years later I you know sent it around to a whole bunch of my clients again and just say look just to remind you this is what we're saying you know 15 years ago and I could have published that report today you know yeah. it was as relevant today as what it was 15 years ago and then you got to ask yourself well why didn't things change you know what why haven't you know these big companies really moved and and I just don't think there's they're not built on it. You know, their, their DNA and their structure is not there. And, and I think back to working for Rio Tinto 20 years ago is 
a little bit of a saying like, you know, they focus on things like safety and, and now they're focusing on ESG. But for me, it's just really governance. You know, most of yeah. these big companies are just doing governance. They, yeah. they produce a flashy report for shareholders. They tick boxes and they minimize risk. So, mm. so the big thing is that all the CEOs that you see here are risk mitigators and none of them really want to take any risk because they get fired and they lose their nice, cushy, comfortable yeah. $10 million a year job. So why are we going to take risk? And totally. I think what we see from that is that actually because they don't take risks, there isn't any failure and there's this culture that you know no one wants to take risks and, and therefore what happens is you end up with bigger issues and, and you end up with big you know, catastrophes and things like that, disasters off the back of it. So I think that sort of left me with the foundation that you know, big corporates, FTSE 100 companies are just not going to change. I think largely because these companies and organizations were really built by baby boomers, for baby boomers. You know, that's the structure. It was a low-cost manufacturing, and you can't change that. And, and you wake up today, and, and the world has really changed. And I think coming back to what I saw in, in, in like doing a coffee company and, and bringing specialty coffee was – we saw a dramatic shift in terms of consumption over the last 10 years. And that coffee industry, that specialty coffee industry exploded, which was driven by millennial consumers. So can you talk about the specialty coffee company? So you're, you've written this Jerry Maguire thing. Everybody's like, oh, this dude, mm, don't know about him. <laughs> but you're still, you keep your job. You're still doing that. Then you launch a coffee company on the side. Yep, exactly. And then basically looking at traceability, sourcing of coffee, looking at high-end coffee, looking at where that coffee is coming from, looking at things like you know fair pricing and sourcing of that coffee, and then looking at the consumer that goes, well, I want to drink really good coffee. I want to know where that coffee comes from, um, and I'm paying more for that coffee. And that price point basically went up, and that, that is, has been a sea change that's, that's happened you know, globally in, mm. in the UK and the US. And did that happen immediately? So did you actually open a retail chain? Yeah. What's it called? At the moment, it's called Best Coffee. Yeah. Originally, we opened one coffee shop that turned into four coffee shops. We actually shut those coffee shops and we focused directly on e-commerce and, and wholesale. Mm. So we end up finding out that actually there's not a lot of barriers to entry and there's around about 10,000 specialty coffee shops now, as an example, in, in the UK and they've exploded wow. in, in the US. and. From our viewpoint, it wasn't really, you know, the cost of capital of being in there, but we could be a conduit to that to that market. So we we supply around about five thousand cafes uh, in the UK and, and across gotcha. Europe and across the world in terms of coffee equipment and coffee supply and, and coffee itself. We we actually roast coffee now, so we've, we've morphed the business into actually, you know, we've got a coffee roaster. But we've branched out and really built other businesses along that that basically really target the millennial consumer base. They, they have been the driver of this. Right. Well, that was what I was going to ask is what, what was the thing that, you know, you're doing this as a kind of, it's called a passion project on the side of the job that pays the bills. What was the thing that you learned doing that? Was it this idea that actually millennials or younger consumers will pay more for something that they feel better about or that is better for the world? Both. Right. So, so what we saw was price points. Well, they are relevant, but but you can push up a price point for a higher quality product. People will pay for that quality product. Mm. Also, what we saw was a change in consumer behavior, like the the non dairy. We we saw that, and we bought into a business called Minor Figures about five years ago, which is probably the second biggest oat milk producer now outside of Oatly. Um, right. 
And it was the fact that people wanted something non-dairy. They wanted vegan choice. They wanted, you know, no sugar. And I think because we're in that business, we saw that trend and we invested in these guys uh, that have done phenomenally well really globally um, on the back of it. Well, so I want to get to the the millennial customer because I think that's a really interesting trend that we're seeing manifest itself in a lot of different industries, online, offline, et cetera. But before there, I just want to understand, so when did you quit? I quit around about two years ago to go and do this full time. Why? What was there a final straw or was it just, did you realize like, oh, I'm just spending more time on this thing that I'm actually interested in than the actual job job? <laughs> yeah. And, and a point of going, actually, you know what? This is super cool and exciting. And do I want to be the guy that's getting up at 5.30 in the morning, you know, trudging off to the city with their copy of their FT under their arm? And it's like, no, shoot me. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, you know I, I went to work for Rare Twinto 20 years ago because I wanted to build things. I wanted to make stuff. I'm yeah. a, you know, and I'm an engineer at heart. I want to build things. I want to build, build businesses. And, yeah. and, and after being, you know, an investor into these companies and building those companies from an investment point of view is actually then going in and actually running these companies is what I was doing 20 years ago and, and making a difference. And, and that's, that was a real driver for me of actually coming back and saying, look, you know, I want to spend the next 20 years building a company that is actually making a change and a difference and an impact. And there's no amount of money that, you know, <laughs> that they could have motivated me to go to, to stay in the city that can, can really do that. And, and that's yeah. the exciting thing. I mean, that, that's what gets me up every morning, you know, to go, right, we're getting up, we're having a go, we're making a change. And, and you know, it, it's really good. And the feedback we get, you know, I think at the end of the day, our best salespeople are our consumers and, and they get up and they, they love what we're doing. And, and that allows us to go and do this stuff. And what was the reception of your now former colleagues when you said, I'm quitting and I'm going to go sell pricey coffee and organic nappies? Uh, well, fortunately, I hit most of them up to come in and invest. Um, so, <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, so, I mean, you talk about, you know, because the other <laughs> one of the other interesting things is, you know, Larry Fink at BlackRock, I'm sure you saw recently, he said, you know, the next thousand unicorns will be climate tech companies or in this world. Yeah. Something addressing the climate issue in one form or another. He is as red-blooded a capitalist as you get. So I'm I'm interested what the reception was, you know, in the city, in the world you're we're operating in, amongst the CEOs that you used to cover. Are they kind of like, mm, yeah, sure, good luck, or is it kind of like, yeah, yeah, we all see this, and there is kind of a sea change happening in the attitudes of the people who are like, you know, making that big machine run. Yeah, the answer is they they want to back you. Like, so we've been able to raise quite a lot of money from those guys, you know, head of PE firms personally coming in, Mm. you know, chairmen of banks coming in, ex-commodity guys coming in, banks guys. Basically, my circle of network of friends have come in and said, yeah, we'll back you to go and do this, go and build the business and we'll put our capital in Mm. um, and we'll help you to do it. So I think that's, you know, very, you know, favorable in terms of, you're backing an individual and backing an idea to go, okay, we can see what you're doing here. And, and we're, we're basically buying and building sustainable ESG uh, businesses. And, and our view is we're going to aggregate and, and bring that together under one platform. And we're going to build a company from that. And, that. and that's what we've been doing. And I think people can see that from a financial perspective that they want to be part of that. I'm sure a lot of them want to be part of it because they think they're going to make money out of it. Yeah. Um, more yeah, than yeah. anything. 
now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So can you briefly describe what is Think Better Group? Like what are the constituent parts? You have the coffee. I referred to the nappy business. You can talk about that. But if you can just like lay out what it is today and then we can talk about the millennial consumer because I think that's a really interesting kind of piece of all, well, central piece of all this. So what we do is we buy, build, and scale ESG consumer brands online, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, our vision is to take aspiring ESG brands, put them on our platform, and turn them into sustainable brands. That, that's it. And if you look at what we've done, we've continued to buy brands and businesses. As you said, we've got a diaper or, or nappy business, Eco Originals. It was founded about 10 years ago. We took a majority control of it about three years ago. Yeah. Um, and we launched that in the US. We've launched that in the UK. We think it's the most advanced nappy or diaper uh, in the world. It's, it's more than 93% plant-based, uh, compostable, biodegradable nappy. We're just in the process of buying a cloth-based nappy business again out of Australia, which we're going to launch you know, globally. It's a big trend from people to either use a disposable nappy um, mm-hmm. that is compostable or moving directly to you know, the old cloth-based nappies, which have, have changed. So so I have a, I have a question about nappies because I'm just, I'm on the cusp of, of exiting the nappy phase of parenting, which is very exciting. And we tried all the different nappies, tried them all, including the kind of, we didn't try eco originals, but we tried, you know, eco nappies. And the problem that we found is that just as a parent, I'm sure, you know, you don't want blowouts, you don't want messes, you don't want the kind of, and the problem with diapers slash nappies is it seems to me why pampers and huggies and the rest have had such a, a stranglehold is like the polymer that absorbs the nasties is really powerful and there hasn't been something that is as good and that the alternatives just kind of aren't as good and nobody wants to deal with like a super nasty cleanup every day. <laughs> well, I think the thing is you didn't try out. You know, we've, we've spent <laughs> 10 years of R&D yeah. and improving that to get to a point where we believe we've got the nappy that, that does that. Now, the beads you're talking about are called SBA beads. So just to give you an example that five grams of that product that you're talking about can kill your kid. 
So you sort of think about all these years that, you know, your kids have mm. been walking around with a product that is actually quite lethal. It's, it's yes. basically plastic derivative, and you're right. That is the beads that absorb, highly yeah. absorbent, but they're highly toxic. Mm. You know, if you look at the, the big two producers that are 90% of the market share and they're white, okay, because they bleach the nappies with dioxide, which is actually you know, banned on a lot of uh, toys, but not in uh, diapers and nappies. And right. you look at the plastic softeners that are actually in them. So you sort of think about the toxic 50 chemicals going into you know, a Huggies or Pampers nappy, plus predominantly plastic, single-use plastics. Yeah. So again, I'll give you the stats that a kid will basically go through about 10,000 diapers or nappies into their potty trade. Okay, that's one ton of single-use plastic. You're making me feel terrible right now. Well, look, I just think it's, re- <laughs> it's reality. It's 30% yeah, of totally. landfill. Like, like, you know... Again, this only happened, I'm sorry, post-war. 30% of landfill. 30% of landfill. Okay, single use, 500 years to biodegrade. Okay? Wow. Give you the numbers. You think about that and you go, why, why? okay, there's a plastic element and there's a microplastic element, but why am I putting my kid in a product that's got 50 chemicals on it? Mm. Okay? Now, I think it's about education and and a lot of these single-use plastics were post-war. I mean, yeah, our parents' generation put them in cloth-based nappies, which are making resurgence. Uh, guess what? We've been alive for 50,000 years. You know, we only had nappies and diapers for a, for about 100 of those. Totally. We'll be okay, okay? You know, we, you know, we might have to do a bit of cleanup, but we'll survive. Now, yeah. I think that's the reality is, is the technology is basically improved. Now, we're 93, 94%. The areas that we can't actually get out at the moment is around the tabs that you're talking about to, to hold that in. Yeah, yeah. But interestingly, uh, as we're talking about is we, we have a wetsuit business as well, Actionware. And uh, what we do is we take recycled plastic bottles that we recycle and we turn them into steamer wetsuits. We'll also introduce a ULX range, which is a natural plant-based rubber. Um, wow. And the reason I'm talking about that is because actually now what we're looking at is a solution that we found in our wetsuits to bring that across uh, to I our see. nappies, which we think we can go to 100% and plant-based diaper. So, so your thing is we'll solve all those problems that you're talking about in terms of the leakage and these things around it because we'll do a natural base. So I think back to Think Better Group and what we're trying to do is, yes, we sell to one consumer, which is a millennial. We sell them multiple products. But actually, to your question around the sourcing, mm. these issues and problems that you have can be solved by looking at other solutions. And that's really what the benefit of having a, a portfolio is. We, right. Here's a problem. Here's a solution. And there's right. some really cool stuff that you wouldn't see by having a single product. And you know, back to the thing is, people go, well, how does wetsuits, nappies, coffee hang together? And you go, We've got one consumer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got lots of problems and we have infrastructure. So So think better right now is wetsuits, nappies, coffee, anything else? Or is that the portfolio at the moment? Well, you know, if you look at the verticals, we're really drinks, which is you know, oat, oat milk, milk right, water, right, right. coffee. Yeah. We're care range. So at the moment, really, it's, it's, it's nappies and, and diapers. But our view is we can add fen care and we can add other things around that care range and lifestyle. And... The way that we're sort of looking at this is, is looking at solutions with, a, for example, it's our peak water jug, which was designed for coffee, for specialty coffee in terms of producing a perfect cup of coffee because mm. you know, a lot of people go, why does my coffee taste flat at home? Well, coffee slightly acidic and 
if you've got calcinated water, it takes out that acidity, your coffee tastes flat. So we designed and developed a jug for that. Now, we could take that jug and put it into our lifestyle range and also mum's right. range because the right pH for mother's milk is around 7.3 and we can use that sort of technology. So the sales channel is, is, is taking different products and pushing them into model ranges. So that's the idea behind Think Better Group. We provide all that infrastructure. We provide the e-commerce, the finance, the procurement, logistics to basically allow these businesses to succeed. And, and, and we drive that from the top cut. So this is like a, the millennial P&G. Absolutely. Without trying to be too arrogant of what we're trying to build, it doesn't appear like anyone else in the world is actually doing this. So we've gone you know, back to my mates at financial community as well. Come on, let's, let's have a go at trying to build that an ESG yeah. sustainable you know, Unilever uh, from the bottom up because these companies won't do it. So why don't we do it? And then if you look at what really hinges and, and what we've done is, okay, we've picked a diaper market. Why? because there's two incumbents that have 90% market share globally. Now, all I have to do is start ripping off market share from those guys, and I think that they cannot pivot their business because their business is built on low-cost Chinese manufacturing. Yeah. And as we get inflation pressures coming up, that they just will not be able to pivot their business. I won't underestimate them, but my view is we can only build this from a bottom-up perspective. We can have that sourcing authenticity, and we can drive in. And so you might look at it and go, collective bundle businesses – you know, being a research analyst for 20 years, no, we've thought out everything that's yeah, going yeah. into it, why yeah. we're doing it, what the market share is, and what we're trying to achieve by actually going into these markets. So the consumer, the kind of, as you say, as you alluded to, you know, you have all these disparate kind of brands and businesses, but they're all directed toward the same consumer. And I want to talk about that because I think it's interesting because we've had people on this podcast before, specifically like the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, and he was talking about how he as a as an employer of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and a lot of them are young people coming into the market in the last five years or so. You know, he's like the whole expectation around this new workforce and what they want this company to be is wildly different than the older generations. He's like, you know, they want they want to know what our stance is on social issues. They feel a deep affinity for their company in the way that, you know, people 20, 30 years ago might have felt for like their country or a team or something. They feel like they're a citizen of Microsoft and they, they're very demanding about what that company stands for, what they do, what they don't do, how they operate, et cetera. And it feels like the consumer you are targeting, I mean, it's a lot of those same themes. So I don't know if you could just talk about kind of what it is that you're seeing and why you're confident that you can actually build this thing. Well, let's take a step back. Who are we dealing with? These are the most highly educated generation that we've ever seen. So if you look at, you know, that, that generation X, those post baby boomers, yep. okay, most of them have been to university. You know, you're looking at sort of 41%, 45% of them being to university versus the baby boomers that say 20, 22%. Yeah. Okay. So they're educated. They know how to educate themselves. They're informed about these issues. The second thing is that whether we like it or not is that this generation has been massively impacted by you know financial pressures and crisis and things like that. Now, yeah. I'll get might get off on my hobby horse, but look at what drove this quantitative easing has been part of the reason why we're we're in this situation mm -hmm. and the banks have printed free money and who's that benefited? It's been the older generation and those with assets. Yeah. Okay? 
And they have seen a massive explosion in terms of what their asset value is uh, in terms of that. A lot of these guys on defined benefits and pension plans. And, and that, that's the, you know, the situation that, that, that they've basically you know, been in. And rightly so, I think, with, with that sort of change is that the central banks thought, we'll cut interest rates to zero and that's going to stimulate growth. Yeah. And the capital market said, okay, guys, well, we used to get yield through bonds. We can't get that anymore. Equities, equities, you've got to cut costs. So if you look at all these FTSE 100 companies, back to that risk profile, they've been driven by shareholders to cut costs to pay dividends, to fund that dividend process. So the millennial generations turn up and go, well, do I want to go and work for the FTSE 100 cost-cutting mechanism? You know, this generation has got all the wealth. You know, I want to live. I want to, you know, what I do is part of my lifestyle and who I am and what I buy is part of that. So I think totally understanding about why they want to work for who they want to work for that's making a change and why they're consuming what they are consuming because that is having an impact on them. And I think the good thing for us is like 78% of millennials drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. Like 85% of millennials have said, look, okay, they've delayed having children, but they expect to have children. Yeah. 90% of them want to align their lifestyle to what they're doing. Mm. And guess what we do? Yeah. Lifestyle, nappies, coffee. So in terms of attracting people that want to come on, and work for us because they actually believe in our products and what we do and they have alignment in that is we're there. And that's a different yeah. world. It's a completely different world. And I, and I think, again, that's, that's the world we're in. And I fundamentally believe why these big conglomerates and, and organizations that I'm you know, aspiring to rip market share off will not cope with that, that transitional mm-hmm. change. And the buyers, I mean, you alluded to it before with the coffee, they're, they're willing to kind of put their money where their mouth is, is what you're finding. Totally. If you look at the stats now, they will be the biggest you know, millennials and post-millennials. Yeah. They will be 50, growing to 75% of the workforce. You know, they're going to peak income, guys. You know, if you look at that old generation, you know, unfortunately passing away and dying off, their consumption level is going to halve. The consumption level, just the next five years of that millennial consumption base, will go up five times, like wow. PEGA 43% per annum. Yeah. So as an ex-commodity guy, I remember going to China in 2003 and sitting here going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this, this place is going to take off. So this we, is like we we're, were, in the, we're in a millennial super cycle. Yeah, yeah, we're in the millennial super cycle. We are 100% in the millennial super cycle because it's not the only the growth, okay, because it's China. They're going to urbanize, okay, great. GDP is going to be 8 to 15%. Yeah. What the key was is the rate, the first derivative, rate of change. Hmm. You look at the rate of change of that impact, and that was the driver of the super cycle because there's limited supply and massive demand. For those, so I just want to pause because we can nerd out about commodities all day, but some people, so a lot of listeners won't be commodity nerds, but the super cycle, you can explain it better than I, but it was this period of unprecedented growth driven by China basically industrializing at a scale never seen in human history. And it drove commodities to records. Yep. And all I'd say, big call, we're doing the millennial super cycle. Okay. 50% of the world's employed population going to peak earnings that have a disposable income that's going up five times in the next five years. Okay. Tell me what's going to happen. Okay. It's not only the fact it's going up five times, it's the rate of change of that that's actually happening. Now, I think that's going to be pronounced and that's why we're positioning the business of where we're positioning because we are not cheap products 
our mm. diaper or nappy is twice the price of those other companies that we talked about. Wow. But the consumer is saying, you know what? I know where that's being sourced. It's been ethically sourced. I know the products that are actually going in and it's plant-based and I'll pay up for that product. Okay. Now, that is a dramatic change, a bit like what we saw with coffee 10 years ago where people were drinking Nespresso and then all of a sudden started spending $4 on a cup of coffee. Their disposable income of this generation will be spent on a lot of those discretionary goods, not like our parents' generation on housing and all these sorts of things. So long story to say is I think we're on that you know, millennial super cycle and the world's going to sit here in five years and go, wow, that just happened. And yeah. I think culminated by what we're seeing environmentally, the education around that is we're going we're gonna to see more of that drive. The question I have then is, will this move the needle in any meaningful way? So I think I'm thinking about Oatly, for example. And Oatly's had like amazing success. Like their sales are booming, et cetera. But it is kind of, it is serving an infinitesimal part of the market. And it is a part of the market that is basically people who can afford to feel good about what they're buying. But this is not a commodity product that everybody is buying or is willing to buy, at least right now. And when you talk about ESG and the kind of the driving kind of ethos of a lot of these companies and brands and, and millennial activity, it's around kind of helping save the planet. So is this is a long way of asking, like, is this basically just a kind of a, almost like a luxury goods business for rich millennials that's actually not going to move the needle or is this more about this is a thin end of the wedge and you know you start growing it from here well, you know i don't know what your view is on that my view is this is a start and and we need economies of scale in this stuff mm. and we can't get economies of scale in esg until we get to certain points i mean for example you know if you look at what happened with wind and solar effectively you have moore's law where you know every year you can halve the cost just take that as an example is yep. you know so like a microchip or computer chip you know we we can you know double the capacity half the price you know yep. and, and you start to go down that curve very very lap rapidly now we recognize i think everyone recognizes there's a problem we need solutions and this is part of the, the solution now we are providing a solution all i can say is that we will get bigger cheaper and we'll be able to bring that cost point down you've seen it with electric vehicles you've seen it with solar so okay sit here 10 years ago and the tesla was unaffordable to most people well that's yeah, yeah. that's changed now yeah. at the end of the day i sort of look at it and and they're talking about a tax on nappies plastic tax on nappies in the uk and therefore it impact poor yeah i get that but someone has to pay you know at the end of the yeah. day and at the moment as i said with the billions of tons that is going of single-use plastic going into landfill, it's the community problem. Now, it's a case of, of governments, local communities actually addressing those problems as well, either through subsidies or options with cloth-based nappies. And, and from our business perspective, we're just trying to provide multiple solutions around that, whether that's a cloth-based nappy, whether we're now looking at cleaning products that we can we can inject into there. So to your point is, I think it's the thin end of the, of the wedge. Mm. I think the good thing is that there's a community and a customer base that is paying for that, which is actually allowing that to actually expand. We will get cheaper, and but it requires you know, input from local councils, et cetera, to allow that to happen yeah. as well. Right. I think those are all my questions. I will say that I, I'm sure we could uh, swap some good commodity stories when next I'm in London and over a beer or, four or three. Do you know what? I haven't looked at a mining. Someone asked me about what did I think about Rio Tinto and stuff. And I said, like, I haven't looked at a mining company 
in two years. I have no interest. Same. <laughs> it's so funny because you're like so deep in the weeds when you're covering the stuff and you like know all the stuff inside and out. And then you're like, and then you kind of turn to something you're more interested in. You're like, oh, actually, I don't know and I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's asking my view on iron ore. I'm like, I don't even know what the price is. I have no idea. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I, have, I have no idea. Just... Well, I wish you luck. And well, yeah, we'll get that beer next time in London whenever, whenever I can make that happen. Perfect. Thank you. Great to chat. Thank you for your time. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Heath for taking the time. I want to thank you all, as I do every week, for the ratings, the reviews, for spreading the word, for the tips via ACAST, all of it. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you enjoyed this one. I just think, uh, as I said at the top, I think it's a really interesting idea and an interesting time for all kinds of reasons, especially in the startup world. So that is it for me this week. I'm writing about a bunch of stuff in the Times, but I'm not going to tell you what. You're just going to have to pick up the paper or log on, more likely, thetimes.co.uk or find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. UK. Have a fabulous weekend. Bye-bye. to me. Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.